Welcome to the Beneplan Group Benefits Podcast for Advisors. I'm Yafa Sakija, the CEO, and in this episode, we're talking about ASO. What is ASO or self-insurance? In this episode, we're going to be talking about the difference between self-insured and fully insured benefit plans. Keep in mind, I'm talking from a Canadian perspective, but this concept certainly applies in the U.S. as well. So if you've ever seen that word ASO, it stands for administrative services only, which means that you're hiring a company to do just the admin work, not insurance. Um, This typically only is applicable to health and dental benefits. It is possible to do ASO and other benefits, but I'm just going to talk about health and dental for now. Um, Really, all it means is that the client is literally self-insuring those benefits. So instead of purchasing insurance, whereby Fully insured means you're paying a premium and in exchange, the insurance company pays claims and then tells you not to worry about any deficits or surpluses because they keep the surplus. In ASO or self-insurance, it's the opposite where you're hiring either an insurance company or a carrier or a claims payer. So it doesn't have to be an insurance company. It'd be really anyone, anyone that can do the administration. They're responsible to pay the claims per the contract, and that is it. Any deficits are the customer's responsibility, so that means if claims exceed what you were predicting, um, that's the client's got to pay for that. Or if there's a surplus, that also belongs to the client. So when I say surplus, I'm telling, you know, thinking about different ways to do ASO or self-insurance. So the two ways that you can fund it are either budgeted through budgeted rates or budgeted premiums, just like fully insured. You know, you get a price per family per month and you pay that price. Or there's a pay-as-you-go method. And pay-as-you-go really, instead of giving you a set price, the carrier or insurance company or claims payer will send you an invoice showing you, here's a list of all the claims that were paid that month. Uh, Please pay it, plus our fees, taxes, commissions, and whatever. And so that's why I say sometimes, surplus and deficit because I'm talking from a budgeted perspective. If a customer is not in a budgeted um, you know, funding method and they're in pay-as-you-go, you don't really need to think about surpluses or deficits. You're then more looking at the trend lines. So that's really the difference. Now, once you know the difference, I mean, that sounds pretty simple, but it's amazing how it can get complex because we find, at least at Beneplan, that there's so many customers out there that are in an ASO or self-insured model And they have no idea what that means. They have no clue that they're on the hook for deficits, meaning that if claims go up, they pay, they are responsible. Um, We're going to talk about pooling and stop loss in a separate episode. But for now, um, you know, I want to talk about at least in Canada, what sort of risk am I personally comfortable with, with someone going ASO? So, you know, typically it really depends on two things or three things, the size of the company the risk tolerance of the company, and the plan design. So obviously with the size of the company, the larger a company is, the more um, stable are their claims experience typically because with statistics, the claims start to reflect the you know population. So there's that. Um, there's also the risk tolerance. So you might have a large company that has very low risk tolerance and they want to stay fully insured because of their own risk. Um, or you could have a really small company that has huge risk tolerance because maybe they want to keep the surplus. And then finally, the plan design. The plan design really dictates everything because if you've got an unlimited benefit plan, that's not a situation that you want to be 
you know, offering ASO unless they're like a, you know, a very large customer, like maybe the size of a, of a government or an enterprise company. Um, so I want to talk about, well, like what specific parts am I looking for? Well, in terms of size, the first thing is how many employees do they have? Typically over 50 employees for me personally, I feel like that's the minimum threshold for when, if their plan design and the risk tolerance also matches what might fit with ASO, then I'm okay to think about the next step. But I really would not go below 50 lives unless the plan design has zero risk. And I'll talk about what that means in a second. So typically I'm thinking 100 employees and up. That's when it's making more sense. 200 employees, now you're thinking, okay, you really should be ASO because at least in Canada, it makes a lot more sense. And then, you know, just like I'm saying, I'm amazed at how many customers are in an ASO funding model and don't realize it and shouldn't be. I also see a lot of very large companies that sh should be ASO, but they're fully insured. And, you know, so both can happen. So I wouldn't take that for granted. If you're looking at a prospect or a customer and you're thinking, well, they must know that they're ASO. Mm, it's not always the case. Or if you're looking at them thinking, well, they must know that fully insured is working for them. Mm, you know, it, you really got to question those dynamics. So size, that's the first thing. Two, risk tolerance. Risk tolerance. So, you know, if the insurance company comes to the customer at the end of the year and says, you owe us $30,000, like what, what is that number? What is the number where the customer can get that bill and say, okay, we're okay to pay this, or they're going to get a bill and balk at it. Is that $5,000, $10,000, $100,000? I find it's very amazing how many customers, um, when I say customers, I mean, you know, plan sponsors or employers who sponsor benefit plans think that everything's fine. And then they get a bill for $30,000 and they turn around to the broker and say, what is this? Like, why am I getting charged this bill? And so I find it's sometimes, you know, an ex broker or a, a former controller who set up the plan in a certain way and maybe didn't properly communicate along the lines. And now the new person at the customer is just very angry that they've got this extra bill they've got to pay for. They might be an HR manager, they might be the new accountant, bookkeeper, office administrator, even, and they're going to be questioning that. Um, so, you know, that's why I talk about risk tolerance. You think about a large company like a Microsoft or an Apple, they're very large. And so, you know, $5,000, $10,000, $30,000 deficit is really a drop in the bucket for them. You know, they might be looking at much larger numbers, but if they're stable as an enterprise, then, you know, it's possible they might be actually more stable than some insurance companies because those companies could be, you know, much, much more greater. Um, the third thing is plan design. So let me describe some Canadian plan designs that I think fit really well with ASO. Health spending accounts. I mean, that's a no-brainer. If you've got somebody in a health spending account, they really should be self-insured. There's no reason to fully insure a health spending account because it really truly is a defined contribution benefit plan. You're giving your employees $500 to spend at the dentist. You know, you got to pay for that. That's, that's it. Um, of course, if you're in a a pooled type of benefit plan, or when I say pooled, I'm talking maybe traditional plan designs where you have multiple benefits that you could spend on, multiple maximums. And the, I'm looking at two things. I'm looking at the global health and um, healthcare and drug maximum. So if it's unlimited, then that's a problem. Um, I'm also looking at the drug maximum or drug coverage specifically. So in Canada, we have a lot of great government programs that can help pay for catastrophic drugs. So again, if an employer has an unlimited drug plan, 
I'm not going to go ahead and recommend ASO for them. However, if they have a cap on their drugs of $5,000, per person in the family per calendar year, I'm going to be more comfortable recommending ASO. You really have to look at the group, though. It's possible that if the group has a 10,000 drug cap, uh, you might think, well, that's great, that's low risk. But remember, like with the way renewals are priced, that full $10,000 is going to be billed back to the customer. And so, you know, to go back to point two, if their risk tolerance does not even if they can't stomach that extra $10,000 a year, then they're still probably better off being fully insured. Um, other types of plan designs that you want to look at to be self-insured, you know, look at short-term disability. I find with short-term disability, at least in Canada, it's very much priced in a similar way that payroll is priced. So, you know, if a company sets out budgeting to spend, you know, $10 million in payroll, and then three people go off on short-term disability that year for four months each, um, well, that company already budgeted to pay 100% payroll for those four people. So if those people now are asking for 70% of their payroll, because maybe their benefit plans a 70% coverage for short-term disability, well, you know, you haven't really blown your budget. I mean, that said, you do have to make other business arrangements. You might have to hire someone on contract or pay your existing people over time in order to accomplish the work that there were, those people would have had to um, complete. But that said, it's not the end of the world. It's not going to break the bank, whereas a long-term disability claim certainly would. I mean, if you're going to promise to pay someone to the age 65, you know, you would obviously never self-insure that. Actually, in Canada, it's now illegal. You're not allowed to do ASO or self-insurance on long-term disability. And that came after the whole, um, you know, the Eatons and the Nortel issues where you had people on long-term disability and those were ASO or self-insured benefit plans. And, you know, those people were told, unfortunately, we can't continue to pay you, which is a complete disaster. So, so that makes sense, but certainly take a look at short-term disability. Short-term disability does not behave the way real insurance behaves. And so I never think it makes sense to purchase insurance. You know, think about it. Real insurance has three main, you know, factors. One, it's an extremely rare event you're trying to prevent, extremely rare being the key. Two, it's financially devastating to the funding company or person. It could bankrupt you if you're not fully prepared. And three, it's really something that you hope nothing, like the claim never happens. Like you pray that your house does not burn down. You really hope that your car doesn't get you know totaled. But the case with short-term disability is like, it's a fact of life. Like it's not, it's rare, but it's not exceedingly rare where people will not get sick. Human beings get sick. <laughs> and the larger your company is, the more likely and statistically you'll have people that need to take time off work because of various diseases. Um, it's not going to devastate the company financially because, well, remember, the company was already budgeting to pay 100% of payroll. And then three, you know, you really don't pray that someone avoids a short-term disability claim. I mean, of course, you want to avoid that, but there's really not much you can do when you're talking about the health of human beings. Now, how can you tell by looking at a renewal statement if it's ASO or not? There's a few key words. Sometimes the statements that you might get from a prospect or a customer are not completely transparent. They might be confusing, but you can look for a few hints. So number one, look for how they're reporting fees. In fully insured benefit plans, they report fees in TLRs or target loss ratios. Um, they don't do that typically with ASO. They're going to be reporting the claims, the expenses, and the expenses as a percentage of premiums or claims. So they'll actually say 
10% of claims. They won't see a 90% TLR. Um, sometimes they don't give you the expenses in a clear format and they don't say 10% of claims is the expense. They might say, well, $22,000 was billed for fees and taxes and the claims were $250,000, including stop loss and pooling charges. So that's when you want to ask more questions to separate, well, what exactly are the fees? Because you want to find out what's the percentage of premium that people are, that the, you know, the employer is paying. Um, the other thing is it's the ASO statement looks very different from a renewal that's fully insured. With ASO, it's a reconciliation. The statement does look more like a profit and loss sheet or a cash flow budgeting sheet than a fully insured uh, renewal where they're showing premiums versus claims and actual loss ratios. You really should not see loss ratios on an ASO statement unless they're talking about benefits that are fully insured, like maybe the life or long-term disability is fully insured. Um, so look for that terminology in that lingo. Um, the other thing to know is that with ASO, companies typically need to keep a deposit on file or a float. And the reason for that is because all you're doing is hiring a carrier to pay claims on a cash basis. And so they're looking at you like, well, we're not the bank and we're certainly not the insurance company because it's self-insured. So we need you to put some money in our bank account, literally, so that we can pay claims from it that your people would be submitting. Um, I find it's extremely rare that an insurance company will set up an ASO benefit plan without um, a budget or a, sorry, budgeted deposit. So be aware of that as well. Thanks for listening. For more information, you can follow me on LinkedIn. My name is Yafa, Y-A-F-A, -A, last name Sakija, S-A-K-K-E-J-H-A. -K -K -E -E That's Yafa Sakija on LinkedIn.